and welcome to Getting It. The conversation where we try to understand life just that little bit more. My name's Dan. And my name is Saban. And we're both medical students based in London. And in this episode, we welcome back Thomas, who discusses with us the key outcomes of World War One and how they shaped the rest of the 20th century. Good evening, Saban. Good evening, Dan. And uh, good evening, Tom. Good evening. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are okay. you? Oh, I'm very well, thank you. We're glad to have you back. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being. Wait, wait that's our job to say thank you. <laughs> and you also just said thank you for being. <laughs> oh, that's a very nice way to start this episode. Um, As a usual. Yeah. We, we just thought today um, that we'd continue on from our last episode with you. Uh, yeah, I've been going on and on about history, I know. Yeah, I thought it, instead of just sitting in the kitchen with you and you just talking to me, it might be good to record this so that other people can hear it as well. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Um, uh, so I suppose today we'll just continue on from the last episode, if you guys are cool with that. Yeah, I'm done. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Um, so we left off before, just before the First World War, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, and as I understand it today, um, you're thinking of maybe looking at what happened directly after the First World War. Well, I wouldn't go as far with that first. I want to uh, maybe have a quick recap of what we've talked about, because I don't know whether everybody was listening entirely focused mm. about an hour and a half of whatever I was talking about. <laughs> uh, and have this quick recap and then just go through the most important steps during the First World War mm-hmm. and what happened straight after. Because I know a lot of people are not really interested of how people fought and how they felt during killing and, well, being in the trenches most of the time. Uh, so I just thought, um, skip most of that and uh, spare a lot of uh, cruelty mm-hmm. to okay. the listeners and just go straight into the more important things of politics. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting because um, recently on your recommendation, I read a history book um, and um, basically uh, I didn't realise how much the Second World War was, for example, influenced by the deals after the First World War and the settlements and stuff. So at school, I remember we went to the trenches, uh, Saban, oh, in like yes. year 10. Yeah, in um, Normandy? Uh, I think it was more towards Belgium. Um, oh, right. Okay. And, I can't remember. <laughs> no, no, but we did a Normandy trip as oh, well. Right, okay, we did fine. a Normandy trip as well. Um, and I remember um, that we learned about the First World War, but we didn't actually learn about the aftermath. So, um, yeah, today I'm, I'm quite looking forward to hearing uh, your words on it. Yeah, I hope I can get to that and uh, see how this ties in with the Second World War. Obviously, I will not go into all the details and everything, mm-hmm. but try to get in as brief of an overview as possible. Okay, perfect. So, should we resume at the start of the First World War then? Yeah. So, okay. uh, as you all know, just a uh, quick recap. First World War started after Fra- uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated mm-hmm. uh, by Gavriel Princip. And this led to a whole loads of things. And because of several international contracts, pretty much all of Europe was involved in the war. And this is where we started. All the details are in the previous uh, kind of talk that I had, more or less. Mm. Um, But I tried to get through the most important bits of the war. Obviously, um, a lot of the generals at the time had quite a good idea of the military plan as to how to defeat the opponents. So far in European history, uh, a war was fought within a year or two, and then you've got a decisive victory or several decisive battles, and then pretty much you either lost or tried to have a truce and just carried on with your life. Um, and this was the initial idea of the First World War as well. Uh, the Germans, for example, which were one of the leading military powers at the time, had the so-called Schlieffenplan, mm. which was 
a very interesting idea because they thought uh, that the war at the Western Front will be quite fast. They wanted to finish off France within six weeks. Uh, what they didn't consider is how they approach this kind of um, victory. So for this plan to work, they needed to trespass through Belgium, at the time a neutral power. And because of several international agreements before that, they had kind of securities from Great Britain. So if mm. anything happens to them, Great Britain will get involved. So just really quickly, sorry for interrupting. Um, so Germany, did they decide to go on the Western Front? Were they attacking both sides at this time or were they just attacking on the Western Front? So the initial idea is to um, have kind of a weak of offence in mm. the Eastern Front and put all the powers on the Western Front to get rid of uh, France as soon as possible because they knew that the Russians could not at the time uh, start attacking as early as the French could. So what they thought is they tried to get rid of France as soon as possible and so they can mobilise the power to the Eastern Front, which is a lot more land to take than just going through France. Mm. And they've done this before, as I said, uh, in about 40 years ago with the French-German war, mm. which has marched straight through uh, to the capital, Paris, and had a nice quick victory. And they thought this might go the same way. So this this situation has happened before and then happens again as well. It seems like quite a theme. In yeah, they, they really just want to go to France and just come back and then just happily ever after get uh, all the money they can have. And uh, well, so the leaders of the, the the German military, the generals thought it would be quick. So they thought that they would be able to capture France quickly. Is that yes, right? Exactly. So they had this. Uh, usually, if you reach the rank of a general, uh, you are quite old, and at that time they have studied. The thorough tactics of the Franco-German War, the uh, even the Napoleon Wars, were studied thoroughly in the military academies. What they didn't consider is the massive technological advances that people made within the last 40 years. Once we've got uh, starting of airplanes to sc for scouting, we've got uh, like machine guns, very very impressive weapon in the best of field if you haven't seen that before, and then we've got tanks that came up as well. And huge improvements in artillery, where you can basically have continuous artillery fire. And both sides had the advantage. Both technology. sides had similar advantages, but they didn't consider how they would plan out. So with Germany going through Belgium, they reached a point where they could not progress any further because they were exposed to the artillery of the French. Mm. So that's why the trenches came into place. And, and you mentioned that the British were defending Belgium. At the time, they were quite difficult to mobilise, but they started to declare war on Germany once they reached the Belgian border. Because mm. this was an international treaty. Yeah, okay, because that was, as from the first episode, the, the bunch of treaties that, that transpired, basically. Exactly. I, I don't think I've mentioned this one yet before, but as a neutral power, you need kind of some kind of security from another big power to maintain your neutrality. Okay, so when the Germans looked like they were going on the offensive, France and Britain mobilised, even though you said it was a bit slow for Britain to defend. So that's when Germany slowed down, when they reached the artillery of the French. Yes, precisely. So they wanted to defend uh, the troops they had so far, so they have to build trenches. But what they didn't consider is that once you build a trench, you can't go as quickly as possible. Uh, and because the war... Once you reach a point of like a stalemate, more or less, you can't just walk up your trenches. 
if the opponents build trenches as well, because mm. you get shot on the spot. Okay, so that's where it became really slow and sluggish, right? Precisely. So basically, through the, the First World War, throughout on the Western Front, there was minimal changes in how the front was. Ah. You've won about 100 meters, 100 meters back, pretty much. That was the case. And you couldn't do much at the point because how do you want to advance? So it was almost like a siege. It was almost like who could last the longest. Precisely. Ah, okay. Okay. And this brought a lot of terrors with it as well because before you must imagine like young lads like we are at this point, you were conscripted in the military. And if you're lucky, you might be one of the war heroes. You come back glorious uh, and um, tell all the nice war stories to all the ladies and you, you know, mm. stuff like that. There was a preconception of the glory of war. Mm. Whereas this, the Western Front especially was not as glorious because you sit in your trenches, you've got constant f fire mm -hmm. going up and down. You can't sleep. It's nasty. It's muddy. There are rats all over the place and people dying. Mm, mm. You might have a corpse lying next to you. Mm -hmm. Who knows? And you can't advance. You can't show your bravery because bravery means you walk out the trenches and then you get shot because somebody is watching. Yeah. Okay. Because there's, there's the there's the distance between the two trenches, but it's not far, is it? Exactly. So it's just trying to run and surprise them whilst trying not to get shot by how many people there are. Okay. So that's the Western Front, right? So that's the border between Germany and uh, Belgium, Germany and France. Um, and the ma majority of that, the trench warfare was in, fought in Belgium. Is that right? The it, was, it was on the French side of Belgium. So it was on the Marne. Uh, there's a river Marne, I think. Mm -hmm. And it was fought on this front. And the changes were not huge. And as I said, I just wanted to highlight this because it was a new style of war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we go on the Eastern Front, uh, we've got the three major powers involved in the war. We've got the Ottoman Empire, Austria-Hungary and Germany. Fought... Uh, the Tsar Russia, with the Russian Tsar there, still in place. Mm. What happened on the Eastern Front, it was quick back and forth. Um, the, the central powers eventually gained a bit of rise, and then the Russian Revolution came in place, which basically uh, meant that Russia had to retreat from war because they couldn't handle it. At mm -hmm. the time, there was a, a civil uprising and everything went down to shits, basically. <laughs> so... That's why uh, this was a progression. So this is one, one of the major changes was the Russian Revolution. Other things that I would mention during the First World War, which happened, was the death of Franz Joseph, mm -hmm. which was the emperor of Austria-Hungary at the time. But you have to imagine him being the leader of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire since the 1830s, which was about 70 years. He was one of the longest reigning emperors in the stage. And he especially was a figure of... Uh, national unity oh. in Austria-Hungary. He was a very symbolic character simply because in a time where nationalism was uprising from the early 1930s, 40s onwards, he was one of the unifying powers in a multicultural country like Austria-Hungary was. You had about 15 different ethnicities that are now national states. Austria-Hungary, Poland, Ukraine, Romania, Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia, and so on and so forth. A lot of different countries, and they were under his reign. Him dying was not only, from a moral point of view, very devastating for troops, but also caused people to think, well, he's dead now, so we might just carry on and get what we wanted, what we longed for, so, for such a long time. 
independence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so, Aust- so one of the biggest powers in the war, essentially the leader, Franz Joseph, as you said, passed away after a very, very long time being Something. at the helm. And that demoralized Austria-Hungary. Okay, uh, I would say so. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure how you can scientifically quantify the mm. the amount of, of, but as a as a national kind of soul, it it really diminished morales of the troops, I believe. Okay, and so that's Austria-Hungary. Then you're saying uh, there was the Russian Revolution going on at the same time. So the Eastern Front was less, it wasn't so much stable. Precisely. Um, okay, and then um, so Germany's expansion. I guess they were focusing their attention on the Western side more. Is that right? Um, it was a bit of a back and forth because eventually Russia mobilized the troops. And you have to know that the Russian Revolution only came into power two, three years into the war. So we were already fighting and it was quite draining at the time. Because mm. they had to split the troops on two sides. Whereas France would put all the power, as well as Britain, on one line. You didn't have to fight on two different sides to balance the power, just trying to balance them back and forth. That's where geography is so interesting, because obviously being far into Western Europe, if you're France, you're, um, the UK, or if you're the most important country of all, Portugal, um, it's, um, it's, a, it's, in one, it's going in one direction, isn't it? But when you're Germany, you're, you're sort of at the bridge between East and West of Europe. So if you're wanting to expand, you have to go both ways. Yeah, so you have to basically split in half and then fight on both sides. Precisely. And uh, another thing to mention as well, why uh, the geogra- geographical location of Germany was quite unfortunate, as, as well as the Austrian one, was uh, that we, we know, for example, international trade is quite common, but already at the start of the 20th century, you had international trade throughout Europe as well as throughout the world. So because Britain, one of the major powers, one of the major naval powers, mm. uh, basically cut off the supply to German ports, uh, they were incredibly suffering through uh, through because of that. So that's another, just to quickly interject again, and again, highlight the importance of geography in that, yeah, Germany's access to the open ocean was basically strangled by Britain's control of the North Sea at the time, whereas Britain obviously having the wonderful, uh, and uh, as I was mentioning before, the biggest power in all of Europe, Portugal, um, having um, open access to the Atlantic Ocean um, in, in history being such an important factor to a country's power. So yeah, again, I can imagine in a time of war, that being a stranglehold on Germany's ability to get supplies and things. So so in the in the First World War, from the start, were Germany the underdogs? I mean, it was, it is difficult to say. I think at the start, nobody has expected the war to be as it was. Mm. Nobody anticipated something like that happen. Uh, at the start of the war, I think Austria was uh, only going like, oh yes, we just take Serbia's capital, which was about, I think, 15 kilometers from their own border, uh, have a quick play, be done in a month. And they didn't anticipate that Russia will be like, um, Russia had this idea of being the Slavic kind of um, super nation that defends all the Slavs and try to unify them. And Austria-Hungary at the time, I don't think was thinking that, that Russia will go through that mm-hmm. extent mm-hmm. to defend Serbia itself. And they didn't know about all these secret treaties that all the countries made with each other, mm-hmm. which complicated it a lot more as well. Um, but then I'm thinking towards the end of the war, um, how did the war start to draw to a close? What brought that on? Uh, so, first of all, we've got um, Italy switching sides, uh, one of the big things, because um, 
they at at first they didn't actually enter the war on Austria-Hungary's side or on Germany's side, but they were kind of a defense pact. So they did this twice, didn't they? They did this twice. <laughs> they are uh, they're doing this all the time. I don't know, but yeah, they they win wars. That, that's how that's what they do. Uh, so if you want to win a world war, just get Italy on your side, and you're basically fine. <laughs> Uh, at least from what it seems like it. But yeah, no, um, jokes aside, he, like Italy didn't actually fight till 2000, like 1915 uh, when actually they were brought onto the other side by promising lands that the Austrians or, and the Germans didn't want them to have because Austria-Hungary at the time still had bits of nowadays Italy as well. Is that South Tyrol? South Tyrol, which oh. uh, to this day is majority German-speaking, but... The most southern part of southern Tyrol is actually Italian, but th this is about one third of the surface area of this province. But they really wanted to have this uh, whole Italy again. That's the fascinating thing, again, about the geography of, of when you go into the, the central parts of Europe. Um, borders becoming sort of more hazy over time and things switching around so much. And yeah, so even to this day, there's the part of Italy in the Northeast um, where there's a majority, where there's a German speaking majority in Italy. It's so interesting. Um, and so I didn't realize that came from the First World War promises. Exactly. There were the, the promises of the First World War and, and Austro-Hungary wasn't willing to give it to Italy. They were dividing up colonies back in, in Africa to say like, oh yeah, like if we win the war, you can get this or that. Uh, because Austria-Hungary and then Germany didn't have any kind of aspirations to be this great colonial power. Simply for Germany it was because they just started too late. They started in the 19th century, late 19th century, to build colonies. And Austria-Hungary was more about colonizing Europe rather than going a bit further. And is that in part because of naval access or was that completely unrelated? So for Austria-Hungary, definitely was naval access and uh, this kind of marriage policies of the Habsburgers. So they basically send off all their children, uh, the royal family send off all the children to all the dynasties. And eventually they die out and just become part of Austria. This happened to, for example, okay. Spain, um, the Netherlands, uh, Hungary, and so on and so forth. They didn't really fight wars up until this day. They just married really well. So that was their way of expanding, was basically sending off people to get married to, the, to people from those countries high up and then by marriage, getting control. Precisely. That's precisely. This was Austria's tactics. And, that's um, next level. That's a, it's, it's a smart way. And they, they basically coined the policies. And uh, you have to imagine as well, the, the Habsburgs were one of the oldest families to survive in, mm. in, in Europe as well. Been around so, since the 12th century and they haven't died out. And they were quite successful. So it was quite prestigious uh, to be married to Habsburger. Uh, in the first place. And um, just in a broader context, I'm thinking about the aims of the First World War from the biggest powers. So I know in the Second World War, for example, with Germany, it was about expansionism. Is that right? Um, it is fairly difficult to say what Germany's idea of uh, a one First World War was. And I think it shifted throughout the years. I'm sure uh, one of the th reasons is that they really hated France for some reason and just wanted to get as much of a chunk as they can uh, and uh, maybe get some colonies out of it, maybe uh, expand um, land as well from Russia or from, from France. It is difficult to say at this stage uh, because they were never that close to actually think of, of what to do if they mm. won. Okay, that makes sense. And so I suppose in the First World War, um, 
it was more of a defensive thing for each country, right? It was more like they're, they're bound by treaties and things to defend um, their partners and they have to engage for that reason. Precisely. So, so it wasn't yeah. necessary that France gave, um, gave a lot of uh, crap about Serbia. It was more about uh, Austria really begged Germany to help out. And, and if Germany entered the war, then France had to enter the war and then Russia had to enter the war uh, because of Serbia. And then everybody just entered because they had the secret treaties that nobody mm, knew about, mm. but they came to place when war happened. And then looking at the end of the First World War then, if you don't mind. Um, so the conclusions for each country, what were they like? So uh, one major thing that happened before actually coming to the end of the First World War is the Americans joining. And uh, this is not as, as, as glorious as, as most Americans would like to believe that they their troops just uh, were so much better than everybody else's and so much better trained and, and more technical equipment. At the time, they were still a growing power. They were not, as at this stage, the superpower that we see nowadays most of the time. They were still growing just, um, just a bit faster than Europe was at the time. Were there any superpowers at that time in the First World War? <sighs> it is difficult to say. Um, what you coined as a superpower, but I'm I'm quite sure that one of the major power were powers, in fact, were were Britain and and Germany at the time. Uh, Germany's still rising at the same pace, I would say, as, as America was. But what the Americans did that, that really tipped the coin over, they just brought new troops. You must know that most of the German troops were already fighting for three, four years. They were just fed up with this kind of lengthy war where you don't really see any victories, mm. small or big. And then you just see a, a, a new people just coming in out of nowhere, fresh, motivated. And and this just uh, really crushed, uh, crushed the Germans in a sense. Mm. They didn't lose. You must, you must know that the, the First World War never was fought on German grounds. They, like the majority of the population never saw a Frenchman or British entering the country. Same for Austria-Hungary. It was more a war fought on the outskirts of the Allied um, territories, actually. And it was fought mainly in the trenches, right? So it was mainly on the ground. It wasn't so much in the air. It wasn't so much on the seas. Well, uh, the, the, the aircraft at the time were not as capable to do a lot of bombing and shooting. It was very primitive, you must know. Mm. Um, naval forces, yes, they, do, they did fight a lot, but... Germany knew that against Britain and France at the same time, uh, which were major colonial powers, which had um, re-expanded their capabilities a long time before the Germans did, uh, there was no no fighting against much. They, they just uh, tried to keep them off the coasts, basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then in terms of the uh, very biggest battles, were there any decisive moments, any major battle that sort of swung the war or led it towards the end? I wouldn't say there was like a one major decisive uh, thing that happened. It was mainly the realizations of, of the German and Austrian generals at the time that the fight is the fight is not winnable. There is is not feasible. Uh, you might, like after so much time being at war, it's just very expensive. Mm. It's simply very expensive. It's demoralizing. You lost a lot of people already, and. It's, it's, I would say like it's a bit like a poker game, mm. you know, like you went almost all in and the gains are there, but, but 
at what cost, you know, like, do you want to gamble further and further and further for the slight chance, like, you know, the odds are against you. And, and that's like one of the moments that the, the Germans realized that, and as all, the Austrian Hungarians as well at the time, that they paid so much already and uh, it's not going to end up well for either side. So they, they did, the, was it the Germans who surrendered? It was it was a bunch of different things. So one uh, central power after another uh, basically gave up and and signed a declaration of of, of uh, well defeat basically. And and uh, the Germans uh, as well had more of a protest in within the troops uh, that led to a massive uprising that just caused um, caused them to sign defeat as well to admit defeat. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now we were actually the interesting part. It was just just a quick recap on on, on the first world war and then the major events that led up to that. Uh, for uh, for Germany itself, it, where the treaties uh, in Paris were of major importance. So this uh, is this is at the end of the first world war, right? Precisely, yes. And all the things that happened at the end of the first world war are basically the grounds of why the second world war happened. Uh, Entirely, it was entirely the treaties, uh, some people might say. And I, I personally wouldn't go that far. There was other things going on, like this massive global economic crises in the 30s and so on and so forth. But it was it was the trigger. It was one of the first initial triggers of the Second World War. If the treaties would be a bit more fair or a bit more unfair even, uh, it wouldn't have led to the Second World War. Mm, that's really interesting. I never thought about... What you're saying about if it had been even more unfair, because precisely. then because then um, Germany wouldn't have had the capability to precisely. precisely. Ah, okay. So, could you give us a run through of the major treaties? Uh, yeah. So uh, we've got the Treaty of Versailles with uh, the German Empire, and we've got the Treaty of Saint Germain with mm. uh, Austria or Austria-Hungary at the time. Um, and uh, I'm, I always forget the one with the Ottoman Empire, but uh, the, the last one of the Ottoman Empire, which was the third big mm-hmm. force, uh, never came actually to power because uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire crumbled. And um, I might if, uh, come to that as well uh, at some stage because it, it is a world war, uh, even though it was mainly fought on European grounds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a few interesting things that I'd like to point out uh, with Germany. Uh, and why it uh, actually affected Germany so much more than, for example, Austria. So for once, uh, it is difficult to tell your own population as the new chancellors, as the monarchies were abolished, that we have lost the war, even though they didn't see anybody in their territory. No German city was raided. No, nothing was going on there. And and um, this led to conspiracy theories of this uh, called stab in the back legend, uh, or in German the Dolchstoßlegende, uh, which was also picked up by um, by Hitler himself later. The Dolchstoßlegende. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Well, sorry. Continue, please. Just making sure. Um, <laughs> which means that uh, the troops never really lost the war, but the politicians just stabbed them in the back, saying like, "Oh, you can't do this anymore." Which, in a sense, it might be true, but it would not be feasible for another year or two. Uh, even with uh, upholding everything that they have done so far. 
So Germany didn't surrender because they were um, invaded or they completely capitulated. They surrendered because they realized there's no feasible way we could win from here. It's better to cut our losses at least. Precisely. Okay. And so the German people, um, obviously, I guess they didn't have the internet and things that we have today. A lot of conspiracy theories arose about um, the validity of that. Precisely, yes. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, and another thing that added onto that was the fact that the treaties themselves were never negotiated with uh, the the officials of Germany. They were simply, uh, the, in, in German history, it was called as a, a dictate. So they dictated the conditions of uh, the loss. And you, have, you must know at that time, if you lose against another power, there were treaties, there were negotiations about what happens, uh, who pays reparations, and so on and so forth. And uh, this was seen as a, not as a humiliation, but it was simply disrespectful. Like they didn't, like they didn't, like if, if it's basically like playing a football game and then not shaking your opponent's hands after the game, you know, it's like just walking off like, oh, we want so much better, you know. Um, Who was leading the uh, negotiations in the treaty for the treaties? I know there are different treaties for different locations, but there, there were basically no negotiation. It was uh, was mainly be- between the Allied forces, and uh, the the Central Powers were not involved at all at the time. And for the treaties, uh, there was one central figure who was more of an idealist. This was Woodrow Wilson. Uh, the president of um, the United States at the time, he had this famous 14 points, which uh, led to, which were the basis. Well, he himself had no idea about foreign policies. He was uh, really unfamiliar with how um, the structures are in Europe. And uh, he tried to be more of an idealist. He he thought of democracy as, as the greatest gift to humanity in countries that haven't practiced democracy. Uh, in well forever it was never introduced to these countries and he thought basically that this will be the go-to further he identified that the first world war happened mainly because of ethnic issues so he thought that if we put uh, every single ethnicity into one country we will solve uh, a lot of issues uh, which was the self-declaration of uh, countries uh, which led to uh, a lot of independence movements, especially in Austria-Hungary, uh, which led to the formation of Austria, Hungary, uh, Sl- uh, the Yugoslavian Kingdom. Uh, we've got uh, Czechoslovakia. We've got Poland rising from that as well. And uh, interesting thing with Poland was that um, they were granted, they were at a separate point. They were actually a separate point for uh, the 14 points of Woodrow Wilson that they should get access to the sea, which was uh, which was fairly difficult to say because uh, Poland itself was never existing as a country for 123 years, but getting them access would mean to cut off a lot of German grounds. Oh, uh, I've seen the, the maps where it's Germany hugging up the, the eastern side. Precisely. Up towards, yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, they basically cut off uh, a lot of Prussia at the time uh, for for Poland to get access to the sea, which caused um, the so-called casus belli for for Germany. Uh, And Hitler put this up as uh, Poland being ignorant in the late 30s because they didn't want to let a German railway through their own land to connect with Germany. So Poland hadn't existed. So at the end of the First World War, Poland hadn't existed for 123 years. 
and um, it was so it was part of Austria Hungary. Was that right? It was or, part of Austria Hungary. It was part of uh, Germany. So it was, so, and it was also part of Russia. So that's where like you've got like Silesia. You've got like the different parts of Poland being in di- split up into different precisely yeah. nations. Okay, and you must imagine during the First World War they were fighting against each other. Wow! Because every yeah. single side promised independence. Because so Poland was split up into different countries, so the German bit of Poland would be fighting against the Austria-Hungarian, uh, the the Russian bit. Sorry, the Russian and, bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so, um, basically, just I want to clarify. So with Woodrow Wilson and his fourteen rules, it, that that was very clutch from him then for for Poland. So he said, Poland must get a, a coastline. Yes. Okay. So and that coastline is going to be taken away from Germany and given to Poland. Uh, yes. Uh, he, he tried to satisfy a lot of different views because uh, France and England had this, they were quite adamant on destroying Germany into pieces uh, because they saw this as, as a threat to, uh, well, national and global security at the time, uh, which partly might be right, might be wrong, especially if you consider what side you're on. Um, and secondly, he wanted to satisfy the local community as well. Like the elections were coming up. He wanted. He was the president at the time, and a lot of Americans at the time still had strong ties to Europe, uh, be it uh, from Ireland, be it from Poland, and even mm. the Germans had strong ties to them. Uh, so um, he tried to satisfy as many people back home, as well as uh, in Europe. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so that that essentially led to Germany being massively weakened and feeling hard done by? Um, Germany being weakened a lot was also because they had to pay exorbitant uh, reparations, which were not comparable to to anything before, which weakened them economically very significantly. They had to, they lost a lot of land, uh, lost a lot of people during the war. The whole industry was pretty much damaged. so yeah, there was a lot of things why they were unhappy, especially because they never actually lost, like mm. they were not in their territory. Mm. Uh, so people were very discontent with that. And out of all of the treaties, was there one that was the biggest slap maybe, or one that um, caused some animosity, frustration among the German people, or maybe that continued into the Second World War? Uh, other the points of the treaty. Mm. It was a combination. Uh, it was the feeling that they actually haven't lost, because uh, uh, usually you would see enemies on your territory. Is a combination of paying as much, as well as being incredibly in debt because uh, of the war. And interestingly, the debts themselves for European countries uh, gave to one advantage to one single country in the world that uh, you might think of uh, was America. Mm. At the time, Britain was the largest uh, giver of uh, credits to countries, which totally changed. And it was actually the one that was most in debt, for example. So the war, what what it did to Europe was giving the power to America. This was Ah. one of the main things, uh, because they were fighting over these things. But America was giving them money for that. Mm -hmm. And by doing this, they enriched themselves in such a way that they become the global superpower that we know now. So out of the war, the biggest winner, potentially the First World War, was the US? By far, by far. Okay. Like Britain didn't gain much of that. They gained a few colonies from Germany the, every now and then. The France didn't get much. They get a bit of, of land back. But in essence, it was the, the only winner of the First World War was, was the Americans. 
And then how about um, the Russians who'd just gone through a massive revolution as well? Um, they must have been really affected after the First World War. For Russia itself, it was quite difficult because uh, they were losing land as well because a lot of independent, independence happens. We've got Lithuania, oh. uh, we've got Poland coming uh, independent as well as, as Ukraine for a short while. Uh, but it's difficult to say if the war impacted that or it was the revolution itself. So it's quite difficult to distinguish between these two. Uh, and the third thing that happened was the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which I mean, they were, they were one of the major sources of stability in the region. But once this kind of power collapsed, it, it basically formed a vacuum in the region. Mm -hmm. And uh, we see this to this day that there is a lot of conflict going on. And one of the roots where it happened was the First World War again. Okay, so um, from my understanding, um, the... A lot of the instability now in the Balkans can can be drawn back to the way that the Ottoman Empire fell. Not to the Balkans, to the Middle East. Sorry, in the Middle East. Okay, yes, yes. Off, uh, okay. So all the way spreading down to the Middle East, and so I mean, it's it's going a bit away from Europe, but um, with with regard to the Middle East after the First World War, were the Western powers exerting their influence more after the First World War? Yeah, definitely. Like uh, Britain get because uh, Britain gained a lot of power, which also comes with great responsibility. Uh, but what it led to was uh, the initial thinking of of Zionist forces to create a, a state in, in in what was formerly known as Palestine, um, in a sense. Uh, so it, it led to the, the issues that we see in the region until to this day. And so something I remember at school, I would always hear about Zionism. And I didn't actually know what it was. For anyone um, who, who doesn't know about Zionism, could you quickly explain it? Uh, so it is the, a state, a, a Jewish state in the former province of Judea mm -hmm. uh, from the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. uh, where a lot of the religious sites are found as well. Mm -hmm. And so it was after the First World War that that was being introduced, that concept. Uh, I'll, strictly speaking, it happened after the Second World War. Uh, the initiatives started during, well, shortly after the First World War. Okay, okay, that makes sense. And then uh, going back more in, into Europe, the time between the First and Second World War, um, was there some sort of recovery after the treaties had all been signed and things settled down? Or was there, was there still instability for the next 20 years? Uh, so what I can say for once, um, the biggest loser was, well, the two biggest losers of the, of the war were Austria-Hungary, uh, which was a major European superpower, which was diminished to a few fractions of states. Uh, so barely insignificant. And then Austria, and Germany itself, uh, because leading up to the the years leading up to the war, uh, Germany was actually one of the major uh, scientific countries. Uh, a lot of science, uh, a lot of Nobel prizes, for example, were awarded to German scientists at the time, as well as uh, German was one, if not the most spoken scientific language, mm. which nowadays we consider English to be. And because of losing the First World War, and well especially after the Second World War, but also already after the First World War, the, the significance drastically de declined, mm. uh, as well as for, for German culture, and which was fairly widespread in, in America. 
So it was not, they were not proud to be Germans anymore. They were more hiding. Uh, so it was, it was a total shift in, in, in ideas. And so obviously it's the first world war and we've been talking a lot about the war being fought in Europe, um, touching slightly on the Middle East. Um, and obviously America had an involvement as well. Um, what else caused it to be a global war? What was the involvement, for example? Was there any involvement at all from the Far East, maybe? Um, so what I can say, uh, I'm, I'm coming back to the Far East, I, I didn't forget. Uh, one of the things that made it a world war, in a sense, was also, uh, for example, the former British colonies like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, were fighting in the front. And uh, in Australia and, and I'm not sure about Canadian and, and New Zealand history, it was one of the first times that the troops fought together under the ban of Australia, for example, in this case. And uh, it is considered widely as, as the formation of the nation of Australia, uh, a sense of, of togetherness and mm. seeing themselves as a nation. Because every country has got this kind of mythical birthplace where it was actually founded might be founded in in an office or somewhere, but, but there is a cultural identity to it. Mm. And for Australia especially, and, and I think to some extent also for New Zealand and Canada, it was definitely the First World War. Uh, for example, the, the, uh, the, the Battle of Gallipol, which was quite significant there. Okay, so that essentially is the involvement of um, so the British colonies at the time. I'm guessing the French colonies at the time also had an involvement. Um, Spain and Portugal were not so involved in the First World War, I'm guessing, just because of their geography, sort of being a little bit out of the way. Yeah, uh, in a sense, not, I mean, not particularly, I would say, at least not uh, visibly. Like, uh, there were a lot of countries that were directly or indirectly involved, uh, for example, be China that didn't actually send any troops, but was sending labor forces to French factories, for example. Uh, interestingly, a lot of communist leaders actually came back from these factories uh, with an education in French schools, uh, which was then again had an impact on, on Chinese history. Uh, and uh, the Japanese actually fought, um, sent troops uh, in a lesser extent than during the Second World War, uh, but they were involved in fighting as well. And so they were supporting the, um, they were supporting France, the UK, was it the, the Triple Entente? They were supporting. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Okay, um, and then uh, after the First World War, I suppose they weren't too involved. Um, that was at the time of the Japanese Empire starting to spread. Is that right? So yeah, yes, they started to expand at that time, and uh, I mean the expansion of Japan, I think, started already before the First World mm. War with mm. with uh, the fight uh, against Russia, where actually Jap Japanese were the first. Uh, out, force outside from Europe uh, that actually won a fight against a European country mm, very for interesting. a very long time. So that brings us up to essentially um, the 1930s pretty much, maybe the late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, I'm not sure if you want to cut it there and then at the next episode we can start talking specifically about the rise again of Germany and maybe the build up to the Second World War. So we've covered the actual First World War itself and we've taken a look at um, some of the instabilities that arose after the First World War because of the treaties and the pacts that um, led to the formation of new European states and basically a big change in the structure of Europe. Are you, are you cool with that? Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, there's, there's only one thing that uh, I wanted to say just to 
make it a bit round. Uh, just to come back to Woodrow Wilson, uh, he suggested a formation of something called uh, something uh, similar to the UN, which was the League of Nations. But uh, the United States actually abstained from joining them, uh, which uh, would, some people might argue, that would prevent further wars. Uh, but in essence, because they didn't take part in from at the very start, it was uh, simply an idea rather than anything else. But it was uh, one of the ideas that were carried on after mm -hmm. the Second World War. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, oh, there's one more question on my part, which would be um, the role of India in the First World War. At a time being a colony, well, at a time of again being a colony, most of the time, uh, any kind of British, French, or anybody's colonies pretty much sent troops and they were deployed mm. as much as they were. And and, and uh, you can, I'm not quite sure about the troop sizes that were sent, um, but they were directly involved in the war as well. Okay, okay, you've satiated my question appetite. That's good to hear. Thank you very much for that, Saban. Are there any questions on your end? No, I mean, I've just been sat in silence listening in awe. Um, <laughs> I'm just so uninformed about all, all of this aspect of of history and, and stuff. So I'm just taking a lot of information. I can't really provide anything or even provide insightful questions because I'm so uninformed. But um, I, I guess I had one question in terms of, say, uh, like, if I would want to get into learning just more about history in general, not specifically say European history or, you know, of the world wars and whatnot, but say of like key events that happened all over the world, is there a particular book or resource or documentary or some series or something that you would recommend? I mean, it's difficult to say uh, to have one book that tries to capture the whole world. Or, or um, even something like a, a couple of books, like, you know, this book for maybe this, kind of area of the world or this section of history and then another book for a different one yeah definitely so this is one that i recommend uh down as well uh is it's called the silk road uh which i think is a very different take on on world history because uh if you listen to history pretty much anywhere even if it's a fictional tv show you most likely will see this from a very european perspective uh you see this um not how the people that were well, colonized all that, but you see this most likely from the perspective of of, of the the white man, as as, as you like to call that. Uh, and I think the Silk Road takes uh, a bit of a different take on history, simply because it uh, looks at the world. Uh, and uh, I have to say this: Europe was never the center of the universe. It was not for a very long time not the center of the world, as as we like to think. Uh, well, at least Europeans like to think. Uh, but uh, the Middle East was one of the major powers as well. We've got the Islamic uh, art and, and science, which, which incredibly contributed to human advancements, uh, as well as uh, the Chinese and, and the Indians. And the Silk Road takes uh, on all the countries that were along the Silk Road and uh, tries to put them into perspective of, of uh, our European history. I must say, it, it was a book that Thomas did recommend to me, uh, The Silk Roads by, by Peter Frankopan. And um, I just finished it. It's a 24-hour-long audiobook. Um, oh, you got the audio It's very book. meaty. Uh, I listened to the audiobook version, but um, 
again, it was on Thomas's recommendation and it is, it is very comprehensive. It helped me understand things a lot better. So, um, yeah, I can definitely um, support that. Oh, one thing I remember reading about it when I was reading the reviews beforehand is um, this like angry guy on the internet said, he just called it, you know, there's like the, the title in bold of, of the review. It was like, a love letter to Persia. <laughs> That's what he called it. Um, and, um, and in a way, I can't disagree with it because, yeah, it, it made me realize as someone who, Saban and I obviously just had a very standard, like we had a British education where um, it was a very Britain-centric view on the world. Um, I had no idea of the importance of Persia in, in the history, uh, in, in history going back in time. So, yeah, it, really, really interesting. And uh, thank you again for that recommendation. It was good. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess on my end, uh, that's all probably. I don't know about you, Saban. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't have anything, unfortunately. Okay. I don't know about you, Thomas. Well, thank you for letting me be here again. Yes. Uh, no, thank you for being on. <laughs> I'm just thinking back to the first thing you said. What did you say again? Yeah. Thank you for being. Thank you for being, yeah. <laughs> and well, I'm, I'm so grateful for you being. <laughs> oh, well, you know what? Thank you for being as well, Thomas, because otherwise we wouldn't have had this episode. And I look forward to episode three as well. I look forward to getting on to World War Two. That's where... I'm sure things will get interesting again. Let's hope we not get to World War Three as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yes. Hopefully that will. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll leave it there. So uh, yeah, peace. 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 <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Getting It. If you enjoyed this episode or didn't, then feel free to leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcasts app or on the Apple Podcasts website. We'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or questions about anything we discussed. So feel free to email us at thoughts at gettingit.co.uk. You can also reach us on Twitter or Instagram at gettingit underscore pod. You can find all the links in the show notes.